Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Project Shadow. My name is Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, and today is the day that my beautiful baby is destined to be born. Kinda. See, you never really know when you put things through the process because it can take up to 72 hours, but actually as I'm recording this, the first book in the Mask of the Gods series Crucify My Love, is now available at Amazon, at least in digital ebook Kindle edition. The paperback is on its way and may actually be there by now. I submitted both at the same time. We shall see when the other makes it through the process. But hey, it's out. The book's out. And while I really want to be talking about it today on this show, I'm actually going to wait because I'm going to be launching a new podcast to go with it. That's right. If you've been paying attention very closely to like the weirdness coming out of my head, I recorded an audiobook version of Crucify My Love, and I'm going to be releasing it as a podcast. So I'm actually planning on doing this for all three books in the Mask of the Gods series. So the podcast will be called Mask of the Gods and will be launching soonish, later this week. Um, I actually thought it would take more time because it usually takes more time for the books to get into the store. But later this week, I will definitely be talking about that because I'm so excited that I get to share this with you. But if you can't wait, down in the show notes, I put a link where you can buy the book so that you can check it out if you want to read it. It's dark, it's spooky, it's got lots of blood in it. So if those are things that turn you off, then sorry, but this book is really close to my heart and I really love it and I hope you all love it too. So what I actually thought I would talk about today is what I did in the creation of the world of the Ash Dancer, because this book takes place in the shared universe that the House of Blood and Flames books also takes place in. So if you've read Labyrinth of Souls, same world, different characters, different, well, slightly different place. Actually, both these books, both those books take place in the Vame Mountains, just in different places in the mountains. And the reason for that is there's actually a third book. <laughs> okay, let's just start at the beginning. Many, 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 many years ago, um, I had a dream. And I don't mean that like in I had an idea or anything like that. I literally had a dream. I had a really weird dream. It was very specific. It was very visual. And... I got up and I started writing it and I wrote several chapters in a book that I will not name at this point that I was very excited about and I was very excited for, and I really wanted to tell that story. 
And as I was writing the book, I kept introducing these characters that were just jumping into my head, so fully formed and so alive. And I loved their backstories. And I realized that I was really fascinated with them. And I thought it might be nifty to actually take some time and write their stories so that people have an opportunity to get to know the characters of the larger narrative through smaller stories that deal more with them. So that's what I decided to do. I put down the book that I was working on at the time that I'm still still staring at and wanting to get back to working on and went into full-fledged world-building mode. That started for me for this setting because I knew it was happening on a secondary world with creating a map. And that was a process that, that took me months. And I'm really happy with the map that I ended up with. I actually used a combination of tools for anybody who's interested in doing this for themselves and making their own war, you know, fantasy world. I used a combination of pro fantasies, fractal terrains, and NBOS software's Fractal World Explorer. And actually went back and forth between the two because they have very different strengths and weaknesses. So I highly recommend that you look into them. Most people will probably be happy with one. I, I wasn't. And going back and forth between them is not necessarily the easiest thing to do because of how you have to do exports and imports to get them to go in. And if you guys want, I can do an entire episode on that because that's going to take some time. But I use that because use both of them because um, Fractal World Explorer gave me the ability to create the terrain maps that I wanted. But terrain, but Fractal Terrains allowed me to do like weather simulation and figure out the climates zones and stuff in a way that was really cool and a lot of fun and felt more naturalistic for me. And yeah, so I spent a lot of time doing that and had a lot of fun doing that. Then came the next phase where I started Ma mapping out various countries and political powers that I knew I wanted in the setting and did that as they came to me. I did a lot of work to go along with that, that I think for me at least helped me get into the mindset of each of these nation states. And that was, I did kind of a heraldry and flags for each nation. So what is the official seal of the nation and what is the flag? But my absolute favorite part of the entire process was the construction of fake historical documents. Because, I don't know, it's one of those weird things that I really enjoy doing when I'm world building. And hopefully I will be able to get all of them up over at ashdancer.com for y'all to read and peruse should you be so inclined but it helped me get into the mindset 
of the various states, the various groups, and the way the world itself operated. So I have several peace treaties. I have the charter for the um, Sawyer Trading Company, which is very important to the history of the setting that we're dealing with. And what was really fun in putting them together was basing them off of actual historical documents and translating those ideas into the setting that I wanted to do. Because one of, one of the ideas that was really, I guess, pivotal to the construction of the world of the Ash Dancer, other than the Ash Dancer themselves, which I'll talk about in a minute, was I had this idea of basically what would have happened if the British East India Company had not dissolved. So when the order came through for them to dissolve, they decided to actually take their holdings and declare war <laughs> and fight for their independence as a separate state. So kind of a what if the East India company had tried to pull a colonies of America kind of thing. And so going into it with that in mind, a lot of the documents that I made, like for example, their, their actual trade charter was based on, I hunted down a copy of the charter for the East India trade company. And it was really neat because it made me think of about a lot of things that I wouldn't have thought about in the context of kind of a, I guess, Elizabethan, because Queen Elizabeth signed it, period company charter and what they considered important and how they would have actually organized themselves because it goes through and details their organization and how they were going to run. And it was a very valuable experience and while I would say that, you know, the they very heavily inspired the Sawyer Company that would later become the Sawyer Empire after the War of Independence, not a spoiler, the book starts with the Sawyer Empire being there. And actually, I think they're mentioned in Labyrinth of Souls as well. But um, being able to go back to those primary historical documents and see how treaties were written up and how they actually organized themselves, at least on paper, brought not only this historical villain to life for me, but helped me kind of construct in my own head how they would have operated in the world that I'm writing. And I know for some people who have read my work and have spent some time over on ashdancer.com, you're going to not be shocked that, you know, Prithane is based off of the British Empire, kind of. And I did that on purpose because when I was do doing this, I came across what I'm pretty sure is a fake reference to the fact that in early writings about the island of Britain, it was referred to as Brithane. And I thought that just sounded cool. And <laughs> I wanted to roll with it. So 
I did. But there are differences. I did not, and this is very important when you're doing world building. While, yes, there are similarities, and I really took a lot of inspiration in the, in the creation of the Sawyer Imperial Company, later the Empire, from the historical East India Trade Company. And that did inform some of the British's, Britishness of the um, of Prithane and the Britannians in the story. It does, on the other hand, mean that I had to be very careful not to just bring them in as a pure analog. And that goes for all of the countries that were created for the setting. While I took inspiration not only from some countries, but one of my favorite MMOs for a long time was a game called Rift. And one of the th one of the things that they did that helped the world feel more lived in, especially since I like to be careful with my balonium. I only like to make up words when I absolutely have to. So I like to use real name, real world names for the characters in the stories because I personally don't like reading books about Glot and Hergelsplack because that's what a lot of made up names sound like to me. It's not impossible for me to make up a name. I do from time to time. But, you know, I don't I, I don't like having to just kind of randomly generate names. It's not something that I'm a big fan of. And Rift actually assigned various countries' names to various groups within the game. So you knew if you were in a certain territory, most of the characters would have French names. And while the culture didn't really have a lot to do with France... It helped make it feel much more rooted because all of the names sounded like they belonged together and they weren't gleep glop and, you know, I, I'm not J.R. Tolkien. I, I, I like creating languages. I have done that for this setting, but I, I get really shy and nervous and it's not my bag of tea, if you will, to make, you know, fictitious names if I don't have to. And so, you know, when you see that most of the people from Kishan have Japanese names, that's not because Kishan is inspired by or based on Japan. In fact, it's really not. Um, first of all, it's entirely landlocked, and that takes effect. That has a really big effect on their culture and their identity and how they operate. And I took inspirations from other places to build them, as well as kind of what the characters volunteered about their homeland when I was working on the story and the setting. So you have to be careful when you are constructing a new world, not merely to import, you know, stereotypes of other peoples into the world that you're developing. It can be very tempting to do that for a lot of writers because it takes a lot of work off of your desk. And so I'm going to give you kind of the best worst writing advice you'll ever get when it comes to actually creating a culture. And that is find something that unifies them. Now, you have to be careful about this because you don't want to always create the Ferengi, the Klingons, and the Romulans. 
because that's not really the best way to go at things. The, a better way would be to look at it as if you're looking for a cultural ideal. So this is going to sound really jingoistic and I apologize for that. But when you're thinking about like Americans, for example, the one thing that we all kind of, for the most part, have in common is this rhetoric of freedom and that what we are doing is for the sake of freedom. And that is built into us from our, you know, revolution and where we came from and persists through the civil war all the way up to today. We like to look at ourselves as freedom fighters. We like to think that everything that we do is for freedom. And you can see that actually on all sides of American culture in that even in the dark, shady, you know, white supremacist evil side of culture, if you listen to the rhetoric that they put forward to make that kind of an ideology palatable in an American context, they try to phrase it as freedom for their own people, even though, you know, white people are not oppressed in this country in any way, shape or form. I know I'm white. I have been my whole life, but even the darker shades of our culture are kind of infused with that idea. And so being able to look at those shades of gray based and black and whites on the far extremes based off of that one thing that if there's any one thing that you could say about Americans is we, at least in our rhetoric give lip service to freedom. That's what we are all about. America, right? I, it's not always as easy to do that with other cultures. And I don't want to start stereotyping other cultures because I am not natively of them. I can only speak to my own, but when creating a culture, giving them kind of realizing what their birth trauma was and how that infected their society with certain ideals really can be helpful when trying to determine what your country is like, right? So when you think about Rome, for example, Rome was built on this idea of we are one people, we do this together, you know, Romanos Populusque Romanos, right? Um, Senatus Populusque Romanos, right? The Senate and the Roman people, we are in this together. And even when the empire came about, the phrase didn't change. They were still Senatus, you know, Senatus Populusque Romanos. They were still the Senate and the Roman people. And that idea that we overthrew our kings, right? Because the Roman Republic was born out of the trauma of having to overthrow the tyrannical kings. That trauma stayed within the Roman DNA to the point where you see emperors, especially the good emperors more than the others, trying to stay in this idea of we are one people, we are Roman. And it's us and the Senate together. We make law. We make world the world. We civilize the world. And that idea permeates Roman culture. Again, we're not talking about whether it's right or wrong. 
it's an idea that you see permeate Roman culture. Now, this makes outliers even more interesting when you look at a Caligula or a Nero or, well, even some of the others like Diocletian who kind of turn this idea around and use it as a wedge to reconquer Rome from other Romans. But that national trauma, that initial idea that again goes through various iterations of what does it mean to be Roman as, you know, various other tribes and regions are grandfathered into this idea of, no, we are Roman, which did happen several times over the history of the Roman Empire. They, they are always kind of, at least in their rhetoric, trying to stay in that vein of, you know, Senatus Populusque Romanos, the Senate and the Roman people. And as long as you can keep that in mind, you can build a fairly interesting Roman civilization. Because even though it may be their ideal, they don't have to live up to it. It just has to be part of the rhetoric. It has to be part of the DNA of the culture. And that, for me, has been a really fun tool for developing civilizations throughout the setting and throughout the world. So even in a place like the Sawyer Empire, and I don't want to talk about them too much because I want to dedicate an entire episode to them at some point, but even in a place like the Sawyer Empire, which was based in this war of independence where they were fighting for their company to stay in existence, they're, they're not Ferengi, but they believe in the power of personal ambition. And that is the core principle that the empire is based on. It was the wisdom of the founders who created the company to come over here to these savage lands, as they would say, and try to forge a business relationship and build the empire that they, the trade empire that they ended up building. And it was the audacity of the, those who remained behind to think that they could control that ambition, that they were basically better than their peers. And that jealousy is what caused the war. And so you see this basic idea of ambition filter through all of the characters that we meet from the Sawyer Empire. Whether it's blind, just blinding, violent ambition that we see in some, to, you know, idealistic goals and the ambition to bring them about, to the, you know, I've gotten mine and I really want it to be good. But you can see that kind of cultural thread, hopefully, if I did my job well as a writer, in all of the characters that you meet from the Sawyer Empire. It's a neat trick, and it's, like I said, it's one that I found that worked for me. It doesn't work so well when you're doing a sci-fi race or a fantasy race, and this is a setting that has non-human races in them. They're not really introduced too much in the books that have been written so far, we do meet one in, no, we meet a couple different ones in Labyrinth of Souls, but 
we don't spend too much time with them. And it becomes really problematic when you try to build a species around that type of cultural identity. Because remember, that's what you're talking about there. It is a cultural identity. It's a cultural touchstone that defines and makes these people who they are. And trying to, well, Klingons are violent because it's their physical nature. Uh, That's getting into the realms of racism. it's, It's... familiar terrain because we see it in Tolkien who kind of created this kind of all elves are this and all dwarves are that and all hobbits are this because of who they are but you know that doesn't mean we have to continue to perpetuate those types of stereotypes in our work and in our writing we need to be careful about that and distinguish between what is a a cultural trait and what is a genetic trait and yeah you you need to be very careful about that so that you don't accidentally make your settings racist because i don't think people realize when they do that but anyway i've done an entire episode about this quite a ways back so if you scroll back you should be able to find that because for those of who have been here for a while i don't want to have to retread that The magic system was the other thing that I spent an amazing amount of time on and actually wrote an in-setting book to explain how magic works. And I've talked about that a little bit on previous episodes as well in, you know, game mechanic, using game mechanics in crafting a setting. But it goes a little bit beyond that. When you're dealing with creating magic, one just go and watch the Brandon Sanderson lectures, which means you can either go to the YouTube channel, Hello Future Me, and watch his wonderful world building videos where he goes through Sanderson's Three Laws of Magic, or I can never remember the name of the channel. It's like Camera Panda or something like that. But just search for Brian Sanderson world building and you'll find his actual college lectures on it on YouTube and you can watch those. They're really helpful. But one of the things that you really need to think about besides just the rules of your magic and how your magic actually operates is how it affects people. What, what does it do culturally and how does it affect the different cultures, religions, and individuals in the world? That may sound basic and like something that you would think to do, but you have to be careful and not be monolithic about this magic. If it exists in your setting, especially if it is profound magic, like what we encounter in these books where Shinobu's power literally breaks his own bones when he uses it and causes him great physical pain to the point where thorns rip from his body and he starts to bleed all over the place. I mean, he pays a physical price for the use of his magic that others do not for theirs because the type of magic that he performs is different. But in so doing, you have to think, how do other people respond to this? And in this setting, we meet not only shinobu and his friends but one of the religious factions that exist in the setting the kindly folk 
well, how will they deal with that? How will that fit into their cosmology? How will that affect their way of thinking? Because it's one thing for you as the writer or storyteller or however you're using this information to understand where magic comes from and how it impacts the world, but starting to think about how it that would be individuated into the different cultures and the different religions because they would see it differently. You know, does their religion have any similarities as far as pantheon? Are these actual gods? Are they spirits? Are they made up entities to cover cosmic forces? That seems basic, but when you're constructing the world, you need to think about it not abstractly as in how you think of it, but how do the people who practice that faith think about it? Do they know whether or not there's an actual spirit or not? Hmm? There's so much more I could talk about here. World building is a huge, huge topic. And as we talk about, as I go through some of the stuff I've been doing in the books lately, I am definitely going to get into some deeper topics in world building. So I hope you're excited about that. I am. This is kind of an overview. I'm very excited. If you enjoyed this podcast and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate either this podcast episode or the whole thing, please do that. That helps me out a lot. It tells the algorithm to share me with more people. If you get a dollar you can throw my way, please do so. Down in the show notes, you'll see a link that says Anchor Community Support. You can join the project at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. Seriously, that helps me out a lot. If you want to get a copy of my new book, Crucify My Love, again, link down in the show notes. Please check it out. I hope you like it. I'm very excited about this book, and I can't wait for the Mask of the Gods podcast to get started. So you can experience it that way if you want to, if you like the sound of my voice, because I read it. Um, Yeah. If you don't have any money, that's cool. Again, podcast will be coming out for free. So definitely you can listen to the book then. Um, but also if you could help sincerely by sharing either this podcast, you can share the news that the book is out. You can share the new podcast when it starts. All that helps out so much. You have no idea. I want to thank you for all your support and everything that you've done over the years as I've been getting myself back together and getting this stuff ready. Um, if you want to contact me, I'm C. Dorset on Twitter. You can also download the Anchor app and follow Project Shadow on there. You will see a button that says voice message. Keep it clean. It can be a question, a comment, or a topic you'd like to hear discussed on the show. I would love to make this our podcast. Anywho, I'm really excited. Get your copy of Crucify My Love. Hopefully you'll like it. Um so excited. Anywho, until next time, don't forget, have the fun.